moment. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, reading through verse 26. And because this is the Word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's Day, if you are able, would you please go ahead and stand for the hearing and by God's grace, the receiving of the Word of God. Luke writes as he is born along by God's Spirit, these words. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant... Sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Have you ever had the privilege of walking into a movie after the movie had already begun? I have. I think I've done it more than once before I was married. And uh, perhaps now have done it as a family as we gather together on movie night from time to time. You spend a few moments, don't you, catching up. Or perhaps, at least in my case, bothering someone who was there in the beginning to fill you in with a series of questions. Well, as I thought about our text this morning, our text begins right in the middle of a sermon preached by the Apostle Peter. In some ways, it's just like walking into a movie that began an hour ago. And for this reason, it is necessary for us that we spend a few moments catching up to establish a little context. You may have actually recognized this as we began to read the text. Who is speaking? To whom is he speaking? Why is he speaking? What preceded this speaking? And so we're going to address that for just a moment to build a little context so that we can go ahead and experience the text together having been caught up together. Well, Peter's sermon, Peter's the one speaking in the text, the apostle Peter that is. Luke, the author of Acts, is writing recording. And Peter's sermon began in response to a gathering of the Jewish people in the temple. These Jewish people had gathered together to see this miracle of a crippled man, once crippled man, now walking and leaping and praising God, Luke tells us. In fact, the man who was once crippled was crippled from birth And we discover from Acts chapter 4 that this man was now over 40 years of age. And so he had never walked. And he had spent, doubtless, the majority of his life within about a mile or so of where he was at this time. And he customarily sat outside the temple. Some of you may remember this from a couple of weeks ago. Others of you perhaps not. He customarily sat outside the temple, the place of worship, the place of God's presence, his manifest presence among his people. This man sat outside watching everybody else go inside. And he did this in order to beg alms from those who were entering the temple. After all, in the first century when you were crippled, you had no way of earning a living 
of providing for yourself or for your family. You existed at the mercy of everyone else's charity for the day. And I do mean for the day. Day by day. And that's what this man did. He was carried and placed outside the temple, begging alms from those entering the temple. Well, Peter and John, the apostles, are entering the temple. And again, we're establishing a little context here. As, as they were entering the temple to pray, the crippled man did what the crippled man always did. He, he asked for a gift of charity from the apostles. And Peter responded with these words, and you can look down in Acts chapter 3, verse 6, where you'll find these words. Here's how Peter responded. Verse 6, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then Peter grabbed the man by the right hand and raised him up. And Luke, again, the author of Acts, tells us that the man's legs were strengthened for the very first time. And he began walking, and not just walking, but leaping. He's jumping around. And he's doing so all in praise to God. Moreover, Luke makes a point to tell us that rather than remaining outside the temple, and this is massive for this chapter, rather than remaining outside the temple where he had spent his life, presumably, he now entered the temple with the apostles in the name of Jesus Christ. And we observed a couple of weeks ago that this teaches us a number of things, not the least of which is Jesus is better than the temple. He is the greater temple. He is God's presence among humanity. Naturally, naturally, this miracle gathered and attracted the attention of a large group of Jewish people who had also gathered in the temple for various reasons for the purpose of, of worship. And the text tells us that these Jewish people followed, as it were, this man and the apostles, Peter and John, to a place called Solomon's Portico or Solomon's Porch. And it was here at Solomon's portico where Peter notices the crowd that had gathered, and as any good preacher does, he doesn't waste an opportunity of a gathered crowd. And he begins to preach. And he began preaching about the power that healed this crippled man. Peter actually says that it was not Peter's or John's power or piety that granted this man health. Rather, it was the powerful presence of the risen and ascended Jesus Christ that healed this man. In fact, the language that Luke uses that granted this man perfect health. A beautiful term in the Greek, actually. This man has a wholeness to him that he's never had before. Doubtless, of course, reminding us of the promise of final bodily resurrection when Jesus Christ returns. And we're going to get to that here in just a moment. So that's, that's a little background, all right? So we walked into a movie. It already had begun, and we've caught you up, okay? We've now caught you up, and this brings us up to speed regarding Peter's sermon. And so he's right in the middle of this sermon, and in the text we are looking at this morning, Peter actually pivots. He transitions from explaining the miracle of this crippled man, now walking, to concentrating on what the gospel means for the people who were gathered. Now, remember this. Who was gathered before Peter and John and the crippled man at this point? Jews. These were Jewish people that were gathered. And so what Peter does now is he pivots to addressing the Jewish people in particular. He's addressing Israel. And he's doing so in order to get each of these Israelites to ask this question. You can jot this down if you're taking notes. The question is this. What does the gospel, the message about Jesus, mean for me? Now remember, he's, he's speaking to Jews. But we can ask the exact same question today. What does the message about Jesus, what does the gospel mean for me? Well, we're going to walk through 
the remainder of Peter's sermon, Acts 3, verses 17 through 26, by making four observations. I was on vacation last week, so it's more than three. It's four, okay? Four observations in the text. You can jot these down and we'll walk through them together. First, we will observe God's plan. God's plan. And we'll find this in verses 17 and 18. Second, we will discover Israel's penitence. Israel's penitence in verse 19. First, God's plan. Second, Israel's penitence. Third, we will find God's promise in verses 20 through 25. This is really the bulk of our text. God's promise. And then finally, after God's plan, Israel's penitence, and God's promise, we will conclude with Israel's privilege. Israel's privilege in verse 26. We'll probably just spend a moment there as we conclude our time. God's plan, Israel's penitence, God's promise, and Israel's privilege. Well, let's begin by looking first at God's plan, verses 17 and 18. Look down at the text with me, if you would. Here's what Peter says. And now, brothers, again, addressing the Jewish people, now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Now, we've stated this before. We'll stated again and again and again. The book of Acts is volume two of a two-volume account. Luke also wrote the gospel according to Luke, the New Testament book known often simply as Luke. So Luke wrote a volume one, the gospel according to Luke, and he wrote a volume two, the Acts of the Apostles. Well, in his first volume, Luke Chapter 23, verse 34, we find these words spoken by the Lord Jesus on the cross. Some of you know these words. He said this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Some of you may remember this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So in some ways, Luke wraps up his first volume with this. Now his second volume, what does Peter say in Acts chapter 3 verse 17? Now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. You didn't really know what you were doing, did you? You didn't know that you were actually taking the life of the author of life. You didn't know the ramifications for your decision. You didn't know that you were actually opposing God himself and you thought you were performing a service to God. As did also your rulers, he says. So they didn't know and they didn't understand the implications of what they were doing when they handed Jesus over to be killed through crucifixion. They indeed thought they were killing a blasphemer. They thought Jesus had merited this death. He was a rebel and an imposter to the Jewish religious leaders. But back in verses 13, 14, and 15, Peter indicted these Jews with these words, very strong words. He said, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when Pilate had decided to release him. You're guilty for the death of Christ And then he says in Acts 3 verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And then Peter says to this, we are witnesses. So they're guilty of the death of God the Son incarnate. They're guilty of the death of the God-man I can't think of a more egregious crime committed than taking the life and murdering or handing over to be murdered the God-man himself. But notice the first word of verse 18, a very important word that occurs throughout the Bible. But. 
you were doing one thing, God was doing something else through what you were doing. Actually, and this is what's fascinating about what Peter goes on to say, it's not simply that you were doing one thing and God was stronger and he opposed what you were doing and overcame what you did. No, no. God's sovereignty doesn't work in that way. God is sovereign even over this egregious sin. He's not working in spite of it. He's working through it. It's very different, of course, than the way we often understand sovereignty. While you ignorantly killed the author of life by handing him over to crucifixion, while you had no idea of the egregious sin you were committing, God was accomplishing his plan. In fact, Peter goes on to say, in fact, God had foretold the suffering, death, and resurrection of his Messiah through the prophets. And we've met this theme already, by the way. We're going to meet it again in the book of Acts. It really is a kind of theme throughout this book. God accomplishes his will despite and, as I said a moment ago, even through the evil deeds of humanity. This is, this is why, church family, this is why there is no room for hopelessness among Christians. Amen. doesn't mean things are easy. It doesn't even necessarily remove the challenge of this life. The privilege of talking with a couple brothers this morning about some of those challenges that others are facing, even in our congregation. Sometimes those challenges are excruciatingly difficult. There are times, perhaps, when you feel that life is too challenging to endure. There are some in this room who have had to say goodbye to loved ones, even recently. There are others in this room who are facing the battle with cancer. Still others who face inner turmoil that is just beyond description and unbearable unless they recognize that there is a God in heaven who isn't simply working in spite of that suffering, but is actually working through it. Dear brother, Dear sister, if the cross teaches us anything, it's that God in heaven utilizes suffering, utilizes agony, utilizes so many even egregious things in this life for our eternal good. And so, this is what Peter preaches. While you thought you were offering a service to God, you were actually opposing the living God and he was sovereignly behind your opposition and now brings it full circle to grant you repentance and eternal life with him. It's staggering. It's absolutely staggering. This is why I think, you know, Paul addresses his suffering, and he is one that can say these kinds of things more so than I can. He experienced firsthand so much of the suffering. Paul speaks about suffering as working in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The suffering we endure is actually accomplishing something. And what it's accomplishing is eternally glorious. It's so glorious that if we were to evaluate our suffering in this life in comparison to or in contrast to the glory that is to be revealed, we would call all of our suffering in this life light and momentary. So friends, if God can take the most heinous of sins the murder of the sinless God-man and use it as the instrument for our eternal salvation. He is able, isn't he? He is able to take the foolishness of humanity, our own folly, and the various challenges of this life for his, and use them for his kind purposes in Christ Jesus and for our benefit.
Well, this is God's plan, and this undergirds everything Peter says. And we'll probably come full circle to this in conclusion. In addition to God's plan, in verses 17 and 18, we find Israel's penitence. So God's plan in verses 17 and 18, now Israel's penitence in verse 19. Look with me at verse 19, if you would. Repent, therefore, Peter says. So because this is true, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. There are two commands given. They really form a single idea here, repent and turn back. They have the idea of just turning around. You're moving this way, turn around. Now again, what Peter is doing is he's addressing all of this at the human level. It's all Peter has. God, of course, has been sovereignly orchestrating all things But you've been opposing God. Now turn around and recognize your folly. Repent of your sins and turn in trust and faith to Jesus Christ. Recognize your foolishness. Call your sin what it really is. Call it rebellion. Call it opposition against God. And now turn your allegiance, your trust and your affections to Jesus Christ, the one you killed. And notice that Peter attaches a purpose to Israel's repentance in verse 19. You see that? Repent therefore and turn back. Why? That your sins may be blotted out. The word translated blotted out is a fascinating word. It's, you know, sometimes word studies are a lot of fun. Not always. And we can put too much, too much into word studies and expect too much out of them, actually. Context really is key here, but blotted out is a fascinating, fascinating verb in the Greek. It's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 6 when God blots out humanity through the flood. On account of humanity's sin, he promises through the flood to blot them out and leave only a few. In that case, it's also the same word in Leviticus chapter 14 to refer to plastering or painting a house. So when they painted a house, they would, they would blot it out. Perhaps most vividly, and this is, this is my favorite, it's, it's the word used in Revelation. Revelation 7 and also Revelation 21, a couple of times there, where God promises someday to wipe away every tear. Same word. Beautiful, isn't it? God promises to wipe away every tear. So God mercifully offers in the text to wipe clean Israel's offenses against God and his Christ if they repent. Now we started this sermon by saying that there was a question and the question that we opened with was, what does this message mean for me? We ought to be asking this question on a regular basis as we hear the gospel preached. Uh, Peter's hearers needed to be asking this same question. What does the gospel mean for me? Well, this same promise, dear friend, is offered to you this morning. The same promise that if you repent of your rebellion against God, if you turn back, if you recognize that your life is actually contrary to God's design for you, that your disposition since Genesis chapter 3 is actually against God. It's against authority. Have you ever wondered why it is you don't love hearing the word no I've never met a human being who loved when an authority told them no. As a father, I've seen my own heart present in the hearts of my children. They don't walk around eager to hear the word from their father. No. On a rare occasion, they especially struggle with it. 
And if I'm honest, if I'm honest, in those moments when I'm talking to my children about their rebellion, I'm able to reflect on my own. That moment when I decide to press more on the gas pedal than I ought to press. I remember one in particular, I was on my way actually to school and was in a hurry, got pulled over by a police officer. He walked up and he said, you know what, what many police officers will say, do you know why I pulled you over? And I had a good idea. I think I said something like, I'm pretty sure I do. Um, he said, well, you were speeding. And uh, I was aware of that, truth be told. I wasn't in complete ignorance, although there are times I know when we are, we're not paying attention. I don't think I was. And then he had the audacity to give me a ticket. And it took me a day to get over it. I remember getting home later that day and saying to my wife, you won't believe what happened today. Man pulled me over, a police officer. I was passing, it was part of Texas, passing through a small town in Texas and pulled me over and he gave me a ticket for speeding. Well, were you speeding? Yeah, I was speeding. And I'm mad about it. Why? Because I don't like authority telling me what to do and what not to do. Where did that come from? Genesis 3 in the fall. It's our disposition. It's wrong. It's broken. We are broken. And this is why the call on account of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ goes out not just to the Jews in the text, but to you all today, to me today, and to everybody else. Repent, turn back, and trust in Jesus Christ, and God will wash away your sin. You can have this forgiveness today. You can have this transformation today through the gospel of Jesus Christ by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And if you'd like to learn more about this, we would love to visit with you after the service. So stick around, have a conversation with us. As you walk out of one of these double doors, take a left, and on the right-hand side out there is that room called Crossroads. Go in there and have a conversation with one of our elders about what it means to repent of your sins to place your faith in Jesus Christ and to seek to live a life not contrary to God's design, but consonant with God's design. A life of fulfillment in Christ Jesus and in obedience to God through Christ. Now, in addition to God's plan, which we observed first, and secondly, God, or rather Israel's penitence, Israel's penitence, we find God's promise. And this is where the bulk of the text really is. We'll try to make our way through this in reasonable time. Look with me again at verse 19, which helps build a little context, and we're going to read through verse 21. So Acts 3, 19 to 21, Repent therefore, as Peter says, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And then the promise comes, beginning in verse 20. That times of refreshing may come. Now pay attention to the different facets of this promise. So repent and turn back. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That he, that is the Lord, may send the Christ appointed for you, namely Jesus. Verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. There are three aspects or facets to God's promise in the text. I'm just going to mention these to you. We'll walk through them a little bit. First, notice that God promises that if Israel repents, times of refreshing. The text says, may come, which is in the Greek just a way of talking about this is, this is dependent on your repentance. You've got to repent. Repentance comes first, then this happens. Times of refreshing may or will come from the presence of the Lord. That's the first aspect of the promise. The second aspect, God promises through Israel's repentance to bring about the return of Christ. Do you see that? Peter declares that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. 
Christ has come once at this time. He died, he was raised, he ascended. He's in heaven now in Acts chapter 3. He's still in heaven today. Peter says to Israel, repent and turn back so that Christ may return. Third aspect of God's promise. God promises to restore all things when Israel repents. In verse 21, whom heaven must receive, that is Christ. So heaven's received the risen Christ until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So let's put all this together. It's it's simply this. If Israel will repent from their rebellion against God and turn to Christ in faith, as a whole it seems, God will bring about the promised restoration of all things through the return of Jesus Christ. I think that's what Peter is saying. And I think this is consistent with Romans 11, actually. In Romans 11, and you don't have to turn there, it's a wonderful passage, a challenging passage. But in Romans 11, Paul appears to unpack this same future restoration in greater detail. And in particular, Israel's role in this restoration. In that text, Paul informs us that God's plan had included a partial hardening among the Jews. I mean, after all, you know this, uh, while the early church was largely Jewish, and by the early church, I mean the apostolic church. At this point in Acts chapter 3, the early church was Jewish for the most part. It wasn't long after this, most of the church would be Gentile or Greeks. And then even up to the present day, as a whole, the church, God's people, is comprised of non-Jews. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 11. He says that in God's sovereignty, God has provided a partial hardening placed on the Jewish people. And during this season of hardening, God is extending his grace to all the nations as believers take the gospel throughout the world. And listen to what Paul writes in Romans 11. Romans 11 verse 12 and Romans 11 verse 15. I'm going to read both of those verses to you. He's talking about a day when Israel finally repents. There are some Jewish people who have repented. Again, even in the text, there are Jewish people repenting. The church is comprised primarily of a kind of Jewish remnant. But as a whole, the Jews didn't repent. Israel remained opposed to God. But Paul speaks about a day when Israel does repent. Romans 11, verse 12 and verse 15. Here's what he writes. Now if there, that is Israel's, I'm just going to replace there with Israel's now. Now if Israel's trespass means riches for the world, and if Israel's failure means riches for the Gentiles, you hear that? He goes on to say, how much more will Israel's full inclusion mean? If it's this good now. In other words, if the gospel came to you in large part through Israel's rebellion, what will God do when Israel repents and turns by God's grace through the work of the Spirit of God in faith to Christ? Verse 15, he says this, For if Israel's rejection means the reconciliation of the world, people from all nations coming to faith in Jesus Christ, what will Israel's acceptance mean? Now get this, but life from the dead. I think again a reference to the final resurrection. So one of the reasons, get this church family, this is important just to understand what Peter is saying in Acts chapter 3, and really to understand God's promises and the fulfillment of those promises, one of the reasons Christ has not returned is because God is patiently and mercifully extending his grace in salvation to the nations during this season of Israel's rebellion. And eventually, eventually he will extend this saving grace to Israel before he sends Christ to restore all things. Now, I need to say this. There are good theologians who completely disagree with me on this. And that's okay. They can be wrong, right? 
Now, this is a challenging issue. It really is. But this is how I understand Acts chapter 3, where Peter is speaking here. It's also how I understand Romans chapter 11. Now, what's remarkable about this, and I don't want to get too far into this, but, but I do. What's remarkable about this is as Israel rebels, so they're rejecting the gospel, God mercifully takes the gospel to the world. But how does he take the gospel to the world? It's actually through Jews. Right? Peter and John are Jews. So God extended his grace to a remnant of Israel, just as he promised throughout the prophets. Isaiah is filled with these promises. And he's through this remnant taking the gospel to the nations and now we have the privilege of being grafted in in God's mercy. In such a way, now you need to get this, in such a way that Gentiles, believing Gentiles, are not second class citizens in the body of Christ. But actually, according to other passages, we won't turn there, we are co-heirs. In other words, there's not this divide anymore between Jew and Gentile. Now, we actually become a part of God's people. This is why, by the way, some are uncomfortable with this language. This is why many in the early church were really comfortable using the language of Israel to refer to believing Gentiles. You can take issue with that or not if you like, but the point, I think, in Scripture is clear. Believing Gentiles actually inherit the promises on account of God's grace. What a privilege. What a privilege this is for us. I know there's a lot there. I went there because the text went there. And that's perhaps one of the strengths, I think, of expositional preaching when you're making your way through these verses. Then Peter, notice Peter then details some of the ways We've got to move through this somewhat briefly. Some of the ways God prophesied the first coming of Christ throughout the Old Testament. He actually shows us the center of Scripture here. So again, he's talking about God's promise of restoration. He's talking about Israel's repentance. Now he begins to unpack some of these Old Testament texts, all converging on a single Israelite named Jesus of Nazareth who actually becomes a kind of fulfillment, the fulfillment, really, of Israel. And so this is what he does. In verses 22 through 25, look with me. Moses said, Moses said, Deuteronomy 18, by the way, for those of you who can remember back to the Deuteronomy series, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. In verse 23, and it shall be that every every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And there he turns to Leviticus 23. So Deuteronomy 18, Leviticus 23, he starts marching through these texts. Verse 24, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel And those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Perhaps they're referring to 2 Samuel 7 where Nathan prophesies concerning David's kingdom lasting forever through one of David's sons. Verse 25, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers saying to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Again, quoting an Old Testament passage or passages, Genesis 12 is one of those. So what's he saying here? What he's saying is all of Scripture points to, converges on, and finds fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ. All of it. So in verse 22, Jesus is the better prophet about whom Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 18. In verse 23, Peter blends a couple of texts. He's He's talking about this coming prophet who now, of course, we recognize as Jesus. But then he quotes Leviticus 23. And in Leviticus 23, the context is about the Day of Atonement. This annual day when God's people received the remission or the atonement, the covering of their sins through animal sacrifice. One day a year, this took place through the high priest. And in Leviticus 23, Moses writes 
that if someone doesn't observe the Day of Atonement, he will be destroyed from the people. So what is Peter saying here? That's, that's the text, by the way, Peter quotes from. Peter is saying here that the Day of Atonement foreshadowed the death of Christ. Now, refusal to trust in Christ is refusal to observe the Day of Atonement. You see? All of this comes to fruition in Christ. The prophet Moses talked about the Day of Atonement. And then in verse 24, Peter speaks of the prophet Samuel and others who prophesied so many other prophecies, all of them converging on Jesus Christ. And then finally, verse 25. The promise given to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is, in your offspring, in your seed. Well, who is ultimately the seed of Abraham? Paul tells us clearly, this is Christ Jesus. It's through Jesus that all the families of the earth will be blessed. So what is Peter doing? Just get this big picture with me for just a moment, and then we're going to move on to our last point of observation. Peter is teaching us how to read our Bibles. That's what he's doing. He's teaching us how to read our Bibles in light of the first coming of Jesus. So the Day of Atonement is not the focus of Leviticus 23. Christ is, and the Day of Atonement just points to Christ. Moses is not the focus of Deuteronomy 18. Christ is, and Moses points to Christ. Abraham is not the focus, or Isaac is not the focus, or Jacob is not the focus of Genesis 12. But rather, they point to the focus, Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So what this means for Jew and for Gentile is that Christ must be the center. Christ must be the center. If a Jew is going to have everlasting life, it will be through faith in Jesus Christ. If a Gentile, a non-Jew, is going to have eternal life, it will be Likewise, through faith in Jesus Christ. This brings us to our final point in the text. In addition to God's plan, Israel's penitence, God's promise, we find Israel's privilege in verse 26. Look with me, if you would, at the final verse of our text. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you, notice, first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. In Greek, Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament, one of the ways you emphasize a concept is by changing the word order. You don't do that in English as much. We don't do that in English as much. But this is what happens in the text. In verse 26, The first two words of this verse in Greek are to you, which is one word. I know, I mean, you're thinking if I don't say that, you can't count, that's two words. To you, one word in Greek, and first. So to you first, God, having raised up his servant, sent Jesus. That's the idea. And consider this with me, after his resurrection, to whom Did Jesus appear first, Jews or Gentiles? It was Jews. It was Jews because of their privilege. Not because of their superiority. There is a bizarre assumption in evangelical Christianity that leaves others to believe that there's some kind of a superiority among the Jewish people. No, no, this is not the case. Paul dismisses this very clearly in Romans 2. We're all in the same boat. It's called sin and depravity and rebellion against God. But they had and enjoyed a privileged position. And so after Christ's resurrection, he appears to Jews 
first at this point in the book of Acts? To whom are the apostles proclaiming Jesus? Are they proclaiming Jesus primarily to the Jews or primarily to the Gentiles? At this point, it's to the Jews. Now, this is going to change in a few chapters. However, you need to see this as it begins to change because this is how Acts unfolds. God granted to Israel a privileged position. He did. And part of that privilege meant they heard the gospel first. This is, I think, we keep going back to Paul because Paul wrote so much about this. This is, I think, in part what Paul meant. In Romans 1.16, a kind of theme verse for the book of Romans, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he adds this bit, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek, also to the non-Jew. Now remember, Peter is speaking to people guilty for the death of Christ. That's what he's doing. God has now raised Christ. He sent him to the Jews first to bless them by turning them from their wickedness. That's what he's done. So God was working not just in spite of, but he was working through the folly of the Jewish people, and the folly of humanity. So we're going to conclude together where we began this morning. The death of Christ was an egregious sin. Perhaps more egregious than any other sin ever committed. If we could quantify such a thing. It was an egregious sin committed by Israel, It was also an egregious sin committed by all of humanity against God the Son. Friends, it was our sin that took Christ to the cross. But God was accomplishing his good purposes through the death and resurrection of Christ. And his good purposes included the blessing of Israel and the blessing of all the nations, including those of us who live right here in the 21st century in Powell, Tennessee. And this wonderful news was captured well by the great 18th century hymn writer, John Newton. You may know John Newton as the author of Amazing Grace. But Newton wrote so many wonderful hymns, and this is, this is perhaps one of the best, in my opinion, at least this week. <laughs> Next week it may be another. Newton captures this, this tension. On the one hand, I'm guilty for the death of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, God uses it all to ransom me and to rescue me. Here's what Newton wrote, and we'll conclude with this meditation. In evil, long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayest live. Thus while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief, you hear that? With pleasing grief, 
and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, this really is the mystery of your grace. While we are guilty of the death of your Son, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, you were working through the death of Christ, the betrayal of Christ, the arrest of Christ, the suffering of Christ, according to your promises throughout Scripture, you were working through it to rescue those who were guilty of it. So, Father, I pray that in your kindness, you would give us a fresh understanding of your mercy today. For those of us who don't know you, draw us to yourself through your Spirit. Raise the dead to life this morning through the gospel. For those of us who know you, clothe us afresh. Cleanse us anew. Help us to leave here, O oh God, with a deep sense of our own guilt, but a guilt that does not result in despair. Grant us the privilege of experiencing in the words of our brother, now in your presence, John Newton, pleasing grief and mournful joy to know that we live today by means of the death of Christ. And so we praise you, Father, through your Son and by your Spirit together and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.